Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, welcome to the podcast. This is Mark Graben. It is episode 373 for June 9th, 2020. Joining me today is Professor Peter Hines. He's the author of many books, including Staying Lean, Thriving, Not Just Surviving. Peter founded SA Partners in 1994 as a spin-off from his activities in running the Lean Enterprise Research Center at Cardiff University. Before this, he worked in supply chain and distribution and manufacturing industries. Peter has a degree from Cambridge University and an MBA and PhD from Cardiff University. He is also an accredited senior Shingo facilitator and is a visiting professor at Waterford Institute of Technology. He is also founder of the Enterprise Excellence Network. So in this episode, Peter and I will talk about a number of things, including the challenges involved in creating and sustaining a culture of continuous improvement. Who should be the lean champion for an organization? Are there different success factors in the UK versus other countries? Is humility an innate trait or can it be developed? So again, we'll talk about all of that and more. I hope you enjoy the conversation. If you'd like to learn more about Peter and his books and his different organizations that he's affiliated with, you can go to the blog post for this episode at leanblog.org slash 373. Well, again, our guest today is Professor Peter Hines. Peter, how are you? Yes, very good. And how are you? Um, I'm doing well. It's good, good to talk to you. I'm glad we could do the podcast. And, and before we, we take a deeper dive into the essence of excellence, could you start by you know, introducing yourself for the listeners, kind of talk a little bit about your career and your work? Sure. Um, <clears throat> well, like many people, I started out working in industry and uh, I ran the manufacturing and supply chain for a plastic molding company. And then I did an MBA at Cardiff University in the UK and then sort of um, never quite left for uh, the next uh, 18 years. Um, so I worked there um, and uh, set up the materials management unit, which in today's terms would be supply chain. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, met up with Dan Jones of Wemack and Jones. And together mm-hmm. we formed the Lean Enterprise Research Centre at Cardiff University, which uh, became the largest academic research centre in Lean. Um, mm-hmm. And we had about 25 staff working there. Um, so that I ran that till um, 2010 after Dan left uh, about 2000 and then um, after that um, I spent uh, the next um, 10 years I suppose doing um, training consulting type activity as well as some research and writing primarily through Waterford Institute of Technology over in Ireland and you were still with um the, uh, the, the research group, we, we, we crossed paths in person at a Shingo Prize conference in 2009. I think it's when we, we first we met. We had, the good, we had the good fortune of being seated next to each other or together at the same table, at least, right? I think we were next to each other, and I think we both didn't really know who each other were. And we yeah. found out during that conversation. Yeah. So that was, my, uh, that was the Staying Lean book. Um, mm-hmm. That was the first uh, Shingo publication that received the, uh, <clears throat> the Shingo Publication Award. And then um, subsequent to that, I co-wrote a book on Lean and Green, 
integrating the environmental sides with uh, the lean and looking at waste in a rather more general sense than the lean folks do. Mm-hmm. And then um, the third book that received uh, Shingo publication uh, recognition is The Essence of Excellence, which I wrote with my colleague, uh, Chris Butterworth, who's based in Sydney, Australia. Ah. And uh, there, there's a foreword written by uh, Professor Jeffrey Liker uh, for, the, for sure. the book. And I, I was curious, you know, your, your previous book, Staying Lean, I don't, I don't know, was that meant to be a follow-up to Liker's book, Becoming Lean, or was that just kind of coincidental? Um, <clears throat> no, it was a follow-up to an earlier book that I wrote with some colleagues at Cardiff University, which was called Going Lean. Mm-hmm. So I suppose ah. it was similar to <laughs> similar theme to, to Jeff. Yeah. Um, in terms of, you know, when we started and most of us out doing lean um, around that book came out around 2000. And yeah. uh, the thing was, how do you do this lean stuff? So right. how do you how do you go lean? And yeah. then I suppose most of us have realized on our journey that, you know, the, the thing isn't about going lean and doing some value stream mapping and doing some Kaizen events that that stuff just really doesn't stick unless you do a whole heap of other stuff as well. Yeah. So gradually over the years from about 2002, 2003 onwards, um, what I realized was the main essence of this lean was how do you create a sustainable uh, culture of continuous improvement? So the, the Staying Lean book that came out uh, 2008 was the first book that we wrote that was trying to look at this, how do you create this sustainable journey? And in that sense, we, we, we talked about lean as, a, as an iceberg. So the tip of the iceberg was the tools and techniques that we're all familiar with, as well as looking at end-to-end processes. So most of us have looked at and mapped out some end-to-end processes, whether it's in a manufacturing uh, organization, public sector, or in your case, uh, hospital-type environment as well. Right. But what, what, we, what we talked about in that book, which really was something I used to use in my teaching at the university, was that the below the iceberg was really what enabled it to work and what created the sustainable journey. So that was the strategy deployment, um, the leadership, and the behavior and engagement. So in the 2008 book, we were starting to look at those aspects around much more general leadership uh, skills. How do you affect behavior? How do you engage the organization? And I suppose a lot of the work since then has been uh, on those themes. Yeah. So you, you talk about, and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll delve more into the topics from the book and, and other insights you have from, from your research and your, and your work. So, the, you know, the subtitle of the book talks about creating a culture of continuous improvement um, at the risk of this being a leading question. I'll ask it anyway. Does, does if, if we do a good job of creating that culture of continuous improvement with, with the right leadership behaviors and, and engagement, does that, if, if we do a good job of creating it, does it become somewhat automatically self-sustaining? Uh, I think I think there's many aspects that we need to actually put in, in put in place. Mm-hmm. Clearly, we need to, you know like any change management, we need to get the voice of the top people involved, um, and a key aspect of that is that it's not just. We're, we're behind this like 50 miles behind it, but uh, they need to be leading it from the front. So that's a key aspect. So they need to know what to do. 
they need to understand their role in what they need to how they need to lead the organization how they need to develop more of a coaching rather than a a telling style of ma- or authoritarian style of management um, <clears throat> but i think a mistake that many senior leaders do is they appoint some lean coach or mm-hmm. lean vp or train a bunch of people in black belts or green belts and roll out a whole program like that and think the job's done. And, and frankly, they really haven't done anything at all. Um, so a culture of continuous improvement is where you get to a stage where every single person in that organization on a daily basis is actually doing some, some lean stuff. So they're, they're attending a, a daily huddle they're bringing their ideas for improvement. They're, they're seeing how they're doing the metrics. They're uh, encouraging, recognizing success of each other and themselves. And, and they're making efforts to do improvement activity. So a culture of continuous improvement means that it, it's about everyone doing something in the organization rather than I see far too many lean organizations where it's it's 2 or 3%. It's a few senior leaders that are keen, maybe in the operations area, and uh, the you know the black belts and the green belts come and push lean onto people, mm-hmm. rather than it's actually pulled from the front line, from the team leaders at all team levels or tier levels in the organisation. So that that's really more the culture of continuous improvement that, yeah. um, that, 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 that as, as I as, as we see it, it is. Yeah, yeah, and I you know I've seen. Um, I've, talk to people or visited organizations, hospitals, or even a health system where there's quite literally one person, you know, sort of, you know, a lone wolf, if you will, who's tasked with trying to train and engage people. And and I think, you know, you've touched on a couple of the problems with that approach. One, it's not really being led by the leaders. It's being delegated. And then secondly, I don't understand the hypothesis that hiring one person, even if you hire um, a really experienced, let's say, Toyota retiree or somebody who has been really um, part of um, what we might call a lean organization. I, I don't understand the hypothesis that one person or two or three are really going to have a meaningful impact. I wonder why. Have, have, you, have you explored why organizations try to do that? Well, I think there's a number of uh, a number of aspects. It's it's a bit like the the new CEO syndrome. So the first thing the new CEO does is change the organizational structure. <laughs> so why do they do that? It's probably the last thing that the organization needs to do. They dash out and value stream the organization, which usually causes a period of chaos unless they do some other things first. I think the reason is it looks like you've done something. Yeah. So you've you've gone out, you've hired someone, you've got a budget, and and you've done something, and and you're 100 percent behind this lean, and and hence it's uh, being visible and looking like you've done something, and I think you know probably in the early stages of any lean transformation, you do need a, a few full time folk like that to mm-hmm. coordinate the activity. Sure. But I mean, if you take a Toyota, you, you know, they don't have loads of lean coaches. I mean, everyone does it. You know, they, they, they yeah. reaches a point where it becomes like the DNA of the organization. And, and hence, um, you know, the, the lean coach, every, every team leader becomes the lean coach in the organization. And hence, the whole role of the lean champion becomes a, a non-entity in, in its own right. But that's probably a fair way down the journey. Um, for, for, for organizations. Mm-hmm. 
I'm, I'm, I'm curious if you can talk a little bit more from your direct experience and, and research, this role of a lean champion, does that need to be the CEO? Does it need to be the plant manager if it's manufacturing? Is, is the lean champion role something that can be created um, separately and, and still be effective? What, what, have, what have you seen? I think it depends on the, the point of the lean journey that, that mm. you're on. Um, I think if you're early mid stages of the journey, you, you do need to have this sort of full-time lean champion. Um, and I, I've seen that in many different, um, different essences. So um, what I think works best is that it's actually one of the senior management team. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be the plant manager at the early stages, I don't think. Um, but it needs to be one of the senior management team. And, and really, they need to be the focal point in championing this and making it happen. So it's the sort of VP level in the organization. And probably that person's not full time. Um, the reason being that they've got the credibility of the role they're actually doing. Mm. But they probably need to then bring in. Uh, one or more full-time people directly under them. So if I think of organizations that, that have been very successful, it's usually that model where you've got one or more person at the top table who's really championing this and bringing it into everything they do. But then you've got the full-time people at the doing level who are then given the ground cover to actually go away and, and do this sort of thing uh, in, in an effective way. So I think... Um, you know, for organizations that are the most successful and applying lean or enterprise excellence, lean Six Sigma, whatever we want to call these things. Um, <clears throat> for me, it's actually the two key people are ultimately the person running the, the company or the site or the facility or whatever you're, you're doing and this, this, this lean champion person. Um, and I can almost predict how well a lean program is going to go. If, if you spend, you know, half a day with those people and just mm. find out what those people are like. And, it, and you can come out of half a day meeting with them and say, well, this is just going to be a waste of time. Mm. Or these guys have really got it and this is, they need a little bit of coaching, but, you know, this is, they're going to they're gonna make this work. Yeah. Maybe, you, maybe you've got seen the same thing in your own experience. Um, I it uh, there's there's there you get a sense of an organization um i i think i agree even from a short visit i i think there's the difference between viewing um lean as a sort of an optional discretionary program versus really having a commitment to changing the culture and, and the management system i i think you can tell if let's say a hospital CEO is, um, I think there's a difference between, um, let's say, being a bit of a cheerleader for lean versus actually participating and leading the charge. I think you can yeah. tell the difference. There's a difference between, it's not just the CEO, it could be a chief medical officer, or other top executive. Maybe one, one factor would be like, you know, if you're, maybe you've been in a similar situation, I'm curious what you've seen, but let's say you're brought into um, to give a talk or to teach a workshop for an hour or half a day. And the CEO or the executive who is there to kick off the session, do they say a few words and then hit the door and leave? Or do they say a few words and then sit in the front row and actively participate? That That's mm -hmm. one factor where I might say, 
wow, I would be more confident in the organization where the CEO is learning and leading as opposed to, well, I've championed this, I've kicked it off and off I go. I'm too busy for this. And actually, you know, maybe running some of the session as well. Not just sitting oh, in the even front better. row, but, you yeah. know, you know even uh, better. Yeah. Uh, leading it and so forth. Yeah. 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 And, and I don't think the CEO needs, and it's better if they pretend that if they, I'm sorry, let me say that again. They don't need to know everything and it's better if they don't pretend to yeah. know everything about lean. Yeah. That um, hopefully they have some baseline understanding that, like you said, allows them to lead by example and teach and model behaviors, but to rely on somebody who has experience and expertise and to learn from that and defer to that. I think is a good trait of, of, again, this idea of helping people in your organization realize you don't have to pretend like you know everything. We can learn, we can experiment, we can move forward. And, 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 and that's true. And, and the, I'm, I'm guessing it, in the book, you talk about continuous improvement and you talk about strategy deployment. There, there are similar plan, do, check, adjust cycles um, in, in both of those practices of CI and strategy deployment, if you, if you could talk about that maybe. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, if we look at the the book, um, the, the background to the book was that Chris and I have, have spent, you know, many years working with organizations, training and all this type of stuff. And during that time, we, we spent some time working, uh, some time researching, and we identified out of about 100 organizations that, that, that we work with or touched or researched, etc., about 40 that had some essence of excellence in other words some aspects of what they were doing we thought was really good we didn't actually find any one organization that we worked with that got the whole picture but between them we could sort of synthesize this whole picture that that, that, that actually came out mm-hmm. and we we sort of took the idea that most organizations um applying improvement start with the tools um you know the whatever the Kanban, the 5S, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then after a time, they start moving on and start looking at processes or systems. So they might look at strategy deployment as a system. They might look at the end-to-end patient pathway or whatever it might be in healthcare. Uh And, 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 And that's great. And then generally all of that work has been done in quite a technical way. So it's, it's, it's often, um, done in a quite scientific, uh, I call it a Spockian way. So <laughs> as in Mr. Spock with the sure. pointy ears, yeah. um, that it's logical and sensible that these three people are made redundant at the end of this program, so we'll make them redundant. Mm. But actually, suddenly, the, it doesn't work for people if you start working in that way. Right. So it's like, it's like working on a bridge. So one side of the bridge is the technical, the lean, the sigma, all the tools and techniques, which are all, all good stuff. But actually, we sort of somehow lost the, the caring, the people, the respect for the individual and, and, and so forth. So if we look at that side of the, the, the bridge, what we realize that we need to do is we need to create that sort of culture. We need to create that, that sort of um, respectful culture. And if you think about that journey, most companies don't get past the tool stage they start dabbling maybe with the systems yeah. or process stage, but very few get onto that sort of culture of continuous improvement. So what we talked about in the book is sort of reversing the thinking. Why don't we, and if you talk to organizations that have really got a, a long way and are really successful, the benchmark organizations, and you ask the CEO or the other senior folk, what, what would you have done differently? Would you have done anything differently or whatever? 
And almost always they say, I wish we got onto the culture a bit earlier on in the journey. If mm. only we got on and looked at the people side. So our thinking is, well, why don't we start with the culture and the, and the people and then start thinking of the systems that we actually need to have in place and then design the systems not just to be technically strong, but actually to be culturally and, 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 and principle-led in, in terms of the thinking. And then when you've done that, you can start worrying about the tools and techniques that you need. So you might need tools and techniques that come out of a hopper that says HR on them. You might need some that come under a hopper that says psychology, some that says um, lean, some that says theory of constraints. The point is it doesn't really matter which hopper they come out of. They're all the great tools and techniques that we do. So if you take that reverse logic and, and, and then if you really think about the role of the leader and you take the sort of learning and uh, learning and development theory and really think of the, the role of the leader being about creating this learning and development culture in the organization. So if we take that sort of uh, 70, 20, 10 thinking that comes out of learning and development so 70% of the time of the senior manager should be on creating the appropriate culture in the organization. So doing things like Gimba walks should be part of creating an appropriate culture. It's not mm. a audit or checkup. So hence you start to think about the behaviors that you need. So you want a coaching behavior, you want a recognition type of behavior, et cetera, et cetera. And then you start thinking of the systems. So I need a system to deploy the appropriate behavior to all people at all levels. Because most people think they've put a few posters up and it's done, but it isn't. Right, we need right. a system to deploy the strategy. We need a system that makes sure continuous improvement addresses everyone in the organization. So, that's, so we, we see the behavioral and strategy deployment being one thing rather than two things. So that's the plan in our, if you like, systems model. Sure. And then the do is the continuous improvement where we're doing the improvement, we're doing the change. Now, whether that's small little improvements that are done locally in teams or bigger transformational things or end-to-end -end process things depends on the circumstance. And then the, the check, or, or perhaps we should call it the study, mm -hmm. is actually the leader standard work. So this is where the Gemba Walk might come in as a tool within the leader standard work. So the senior manager might go on a, a daily uh, Gimba walk. And the role there is actually to understand what's going on, why is it going on, what are they trying to achieve, what are they doing well that they need to be recognized for, what are they not doing so well, and hence they need some learning and development in. So hence the adjust or act uh, as the last phase of the PDCA becomes the learning and development system. So the learning and development system is really the output from doing the leader standard work where you've identified where the opportunities are to get better. Then you learn and develop with people. So hence, you, you develop a pull-based development system that's pulled mm. by the needs of the teams as, as seen by the team leaders, the individuals, the senior managers, rather than a whole heap of HR courses that people really don't want to do, or I do a green belt, but I never get a chance to do the project, or I never do a follow-up, and, right. and that's push-based. So pull-based is actually uh, around that type of thinking. So those are the sort of four systems, which, of course, we need to improve ourselves. And, of course, we need tools within all those systems. 
systems. Um, but the tools you might need in a, in a hospital ward might be quite different from in a factory. And sure. that's absolutely right. You know, you, you might have some same similar stuff going on, but if, if it's 80% different, I, I'm not worried yeah. because it's actually the tools you need to do the job. Um, fitting into the systems. And, and what we found is those four systems are not the only systems you need, but those four systems seem to be the differentiation between the really good organizations and the merely good. Yeah. So the merely good would look at the patient pathway and they'd look at, I don't know, the training of new nurses and they'd look at um, development new drugs or you know whatever it is, new procedures, et cetera. And that's all great. But those are the day work if you don't have these core operating systems in place, mm. the day work doesn't really work very well. Yeah. So what, what, what we've seen in these best organizations is they sort out this core, which is, if you like, how the, how the business actually operates. And then the other stuff comes quite easily. And that's really the essence of what we're trying to sort of cover in the, uh, in the book. Yeah. The, uh, if you will, the essence of the essence of excellence. That's right. <laughs> if you like the, the five-minute summary or something sure. like that. Yeah. Sure. Um, so a couple of follow-up questions. You know, you describe, and you know, the language varies, um, PDCA, PDSA. But one, one thing I find interesting about strategy deployment, and you seem to lay it out this way, is thinking of strategy as these cycles of planning and, and, and doing and using scientific um, methods of improvement, and then looping back and, and studying and adjusting. Where I think a lot of organizations view strategy as a linear flow without these checks and adjusts. We develop a strategy, and nobody wants to admit that strategy could be uh, wrong in some way or imperfect. So the organization plows forward <coughs> with this plan, and, and, and there's almost energy put into rationalizing why the plan was not faulty <laughs> instead of. Um, being humble or, or honest about what's really happening. I was wondering if you could just sort of elaborate on, like, how do you help sure. shift that process from linear flow to iterative loops? Well, probably like, like you or like many people, um, many years ago I did an MBA, which was uh, how I got introduced to the academic uh, world. Mm-hmm. And during that course we had a, you know, a, a module on strategy. And it was a classic, you know, here's a textbook on strategy and you do, you know, lecture one was chapter one, lecture two was chapter Mm -hmm. two. And it was very much this linear process. It was all logical and sensible and da, 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 da. But, you know, I was in industry. Yeah, I was in industry. And I just knew that that actually isn't how it works in the real world because something happens. I mean, think of how many businesses have a strategy that didn't involve uh, COVID-19. Right. And COVID-19 came along. I mean, not just healthcare, but any industry you, 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 you race. So probably 90% of industries are in complete chaos and 10% are so busy they don't know what to do at the moment. Yeah. But actually, the, the strategy is almost useless. So what you need is a rapid iteration mm-hmm. of, of strategic thinking. So you might have a long-term strategic goal that might be your 20-year, your 50-year, you know, whatever is the long-term vision, direction we're trying to go. Yes, you need the sort of annual Hoshin plan, strategy plan. What are we trying to achieve this year? You need a way of cascading that to all tiers of the organization step by step so what are we trying to achieve how do you think you can do it 
let's check that, you know, check and adjust, all that type of stuff. So that's the annual Hoshin. And then, unfortunately, many people then think it's all done because we've done, if you like, the plan, and yeah. then off we go. Yeah. And then, you know, for most organizations, two months down the line, something's changed and the plan sits on a, you know, uh, you know in, a, in a nice cupboard or, or something, but it's not real. But if you actually then institute the daily team meetings that are living and breathing that strategy, the team is working to that strategy, and the team at each level should be reviewing maybe on a monthly basis at a more strategic level than the daily work meetings, how are we doing against this strategy? Is there anything we need to adjust in this strategy? And if so, what do we need to feed up? What conversations do we need to have? So in other words, it's not, it's not just a, an annual PDCA around you know, the strategy deployment process unless you have the continuous improvement process, unless you then have the leaders coming round doing the leader standard work, seeing whether it's working. And if it's not working, well, why isn't it working? So hence, the team might want to adjust it. The, the leaders might want to adjust it. And hence, that's then the learning and development. So what have we got to learn so that we're an agile organization, so we can adjust fairly quickly to this within days, weeks, or months, not years or decades and so forth? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think one other... One other thing I wanted to touch on when you, you know, in the book you describe cultural enablers and you talk about scientific thinking and uh, respect for people, um, <clears throat> humility, you know, is is important. They're one of my favorite, I think, un- underappreciated books um, in, in this whole field is a book called Toyota by Toyota. Are you familiar? Okay, with it? I don't know that one, but uh, uh, it was it was written by a number of people who came out of Toyota Georgetown. Um, Daryl Wilburn, Sammy Obara were, uh, I think, the the key editors um, or uh, okay. organizers of that book. And chapter one really emphasizes the importance of leading with humility, um, learning versus knowing it all, engaging others versus um, having all the answers yourself as a leader. And you know, so I was wondering, you know, if if you could, you know, talk a little bit more about. Humility, and then I think the the difficult question because I don't have a good answer is um, is humility an innate trait that just exists, or is that something that can be developed? Can we become more humble? Can leaders become more humble over time? I'm curious your thoughts or experiences there okay, uh, good well, let's take the first one because that's easier to answer okay. <laughs> So the first one is, I think, um, you know, a core aspect is this leading with humility. So I mean, if you take the respect every individual, you know, the fundamental things in, in the Toyota approach, um, the humility is absolutely key. So if you're the big boss and you're telling people what to do the whole time, the chances of engaging them, the chance of them getting them to think is actually, is actually pretty low. Whereas if you take a, a different approach when you're talking to your people and actually you spend most of the time asking questions, so you're actually trying to get them to think for themselves, but you're, you're cleverly answering, asking the questions in such a way that you're opening their mind to what the opportunities and, and, and so forth might be. So um, that really is, is a lot of the essence. And the other thing is, <clears throat> I suppose, when you're having those conversations with people, um, something I learned many years ago is that you have two ears and one mouth. 
and that's the right ratio to use. Yeah. So, you know, listen twice as much as you actually uh, speak to people. And there's a few other truisms. Um, one in the, the psychology of learning. If you think about when you're dealing with people, um, the ratio, I think, uh, according to the research, is 1.1 to 3.57. So what is the ratio between uh, control and correct and praise and recognition? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and probably most of us get that ratio about right. Unfortunately, the wrong way around. So most of us probably spend three or four times more time correcting people in conversations, and you could do it better this way, rather than actually recognizing things that they've done well, maybe from your last conversations, and only rarely do we correct people. So if we, and, and if we're correcting people, we might more phrase it as a, could you have done this another way, do you think? Mm-hmm. rather than you did this wrong and you should do it this way right. and actually get people to think and, and, and rather than tell them, I would encourage people to tell them someone that does it well mm-hmm. and get them to go and look at that person or talk to that person. So again, if you're doing the leader standard work and you're talking to a team leader, you're saying, uh, you know, you've identified something they're not doing quite so well. Um, you might get round to, getting them to tease it out you know what are the things that you need to work on what are the things that you know and, and most people will know and then you could say well why don't you gonna go and talk to mary and team x whatever it is because she's particularly good at that why don't you sit in on one of her huddle meetings and so forth and then you get a very organic um, learning <coughs> style actually happening so the leader really refrains from giving the answers and, and actually, sometimes <clears throat> it's good to even let people struggle a little bit, because it, if it's too easy for them to find the answer, um, then they don't learn. So sometimes when I'm running sh- workshops, I, I have to restrain myself from actually jumping in and giving the answer. I probably do it far too often, which comes on to the second of your, your questions of, you know, can you, le- can you learn humility? <clears throat> and I think the answer is to some degree. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I suppose um, I've seen a number of individuals, senior individuals in organizations mature <clears throat> from a point where <clears throat> they probably very much tell people. And over a, a period of months or even years, they actually mature. They, they actually take much more a, a humble approach and they're actually coaching, developing people. But there is a, I, I suspect there's a, only a degree to which you could do this. Mm-hmm. So we can all probably think of um, a number of uh, senior industrialists or maybe politicians where maybe we could think this would never happen. But we could probably see some people where they've actually been able to take this to, to some degree on board. And I think, I think one of these sort of trait type things and leadership skills is some of it we can learn. Some of it we can move to some degree, but there is a degree to which people can't go too far away from their natural uh, style of and and so forth. And that's one of the reasons why in the book we talk a lot about this behavioral deployment. Mm -hmm. And um, so what we mean by that is if you start with the values or the principles in in an organization. So if you go to most 
major organizations or hospitals or, you know, whatever, they would have a set of values or principles that they run the organization with, you know, I goes, I suppose for doctors, Hippocratic oath and all that sort of thing would be a, a founding principle. Mm-hmm. And then from that, what we often find is, well, what do you do with this stuff? And then people say, well, you know, it's posters or it's slogans or, but they don't really do anything. So what we suggest is that people then say, well, okay, well, what behaviors would you expect in the organization generically if you're going to live those values? So for instance, if we were going to live a value of, um, I, I don't know, um, I don't know, integrity or, or something like, well, what, what, what does that mean? Cause that actually doesn't really mean anything to anyone. It's just so vague. Sure. Well, what specifically would it mean if you were in a hospital? What would it mean if you're in a manufacturing site? What would it mean in da, 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 da? And we get people to work that out and to think of a number of behaviors, maybe six or eight behaviors, and then deploy that down into the organization and say, well, this is generically the behavior. And we get each team to say, well, what does that mean to us? So you might have a behavior like, um, I don't know, take, take the humility thing that we, we, we lead by asking questions might be a behavior. So actually, you then say to the local team, what, what would that mean to you? And then the team members actually say, well, what does it mean to them? What would it mean for their team leader? And what would it mean for their senior manager? So for instance, they might ask, the team leader is the behavior we want from you is when we're, when we're having a brainstorm from ideas, ask us what ideas we've got rather than telling us your ideas first. So we actually have a fair shake. So you actually get into a behavior, you codify them, you, you talk about them, you call out in huddles maybe once a week, whether they're happening and recognize if it's happening. And if they're not happening, then improvements can go into the PDCA um, you know, the A3 projects or the small improvement activities. So in other words, you're trying to live that behavior to hold people accountable to the behaviors so, so they'll live the values in the organization. Yeah. Um, so that's the sort of thing that uh, we see. We don't see many organizations that are doing that as yet, but we're seeing an increasing number of uh, companies or other organizations uh, looking at that type of thing. Yeah. Um, so as we start... To wrap up, a couple of other questions I wanted to touch on, um, not so much directly related to the book, but you know, from, from your experience and work. Is there anything, are there any particular um, success factors that are different with lean in organizations either within Wales, within the UK more broadly, as opposed to other countries, or, or do you find this all to be pretty universal? Uh it's an interesting question. I, I mean, I've, I've done work in quite a lot of different countries uh, around the world. Yeah. I think there are some things that are fairly universal. I think all of this stuff you need to, you, you need to localize into uh, a local environment to make it work. So in, uh, just to give an example, we talked about recognition a little bit earlier and if I, if I was trying to create a recognition system in an organization, I would actually talk to the people and say, well, look, we want to recognize people better. What would be the best way that you feel that you could be recognized? And you might want to caveat that with certain budget uh, restrictions that you might have to put in place, et cetera. Um, 
but the thing is in in the us people might want to be recognized with pin badges and you know this this type of thing whereas that sort of thing wouldn't work very well in the uk mm. and it certainly wouldn't work in asia whereas in the uk certainly in wales the culture is uh people don't want to be pushed to the front to be shown to have done a good job they more want a quiet arm around the shoulder look i think you did really well you know very very understated type of thing whereas if you take a country like india you know the best recognition would be invited maybe to have boss uh, dinner with your boss and the family which probably wouldn't work too well in us or or in the uk either so the point is you you need to think about the behavior the system that you have and then the system and the tools within it would actually be modified according to the uh, to the local environment. Yeah. So that that's what I would say about the, the cultural side. Yeah. Well, and, and then the, you raise a really good point about the risk of copying practices from one company to another, even you know from from one company within Wales to another or across industries within Wales, there, there may be cultural differences within an organization <laughs> that, that makes certain practices, like you mentioned, uh, effective in one organization and troublesome in another. Sure, sure. I mean, uh, you know, even within Wales, North and South Wales, completely different. <laughs> so it's, uh, <laughs> we I mean, won't go into a little detail, but. Uh, I mean, it's like, you know, here, here in Texas, some people joke that the, the, you know, the state of Texas, which is literally about the same size as France, is really like five or six unique subcultures in different parts. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think it's, uh, so, I mean, you know, the, the best question to ask with is how would this work here? What would be the best way to do it here? So in other words, you come, you come in with a what, like in strategic deployment, but you leave the how up to the people themselves. Um, and that way, I think it works best. Yeah. And then the other question, you know, you, you had mentioned, um, uh, you know, the pandemic and, um, you know, thank you again for the uh, opportunity, the invitation to do the webinar uh, for, for, for your group um, recently. And, you know, there, we, you know, there, there was Q&A that, that you participated in, you know, talking about um, just in time and that strategy, is it misunderstood? Is it misapplied? Um, some in the media are blaming just in time. Uh, for, for shortages of, of key supplies. So, I, you know, you're, you're my guest. I want to give you the floor to kind of share some of your thoughts around that, that whole topic. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, this, this whole area is, is quite difficult. And if we look at, you know, the shortage worldwide in PPE at the moment, I suppose specifically uh, would be a case in point. We're probably having a hundred year event here. Um, so, the, the thing to think about is, well, what would you do to plan for a 100-year event and how many organizations have actually planned for that? Um, and I think in most countries, they, there has been some, you know, government stockpiling of, of some of these things to, to cope with this, but probably not quite at the level or scale that we've actually anticipated. I think the other thing with just-in-time is just-in-time, when it works best, is worked uh, on the basis of local, flexible suppliers. Yes. And in most cases, when we're working with PPE here, we're, we're dealing with uh, a very long lead time, very huge quantity, buy in bulk from China or Myanmar or Turkey or somewhere, one of these, uh, one of these countries like this. 
So in other words, um, you, you, you know, supplying just in time from a warehouse in the US to a hospital or something in the US, well, of course, that's going to break down if then the next bit of the supply chain is, is on a six or nine month lead time, ship 500 tons at one go, because then you, you haven't actually got a just in time system. So if you, if you compare that with, you know, we mentioned Toyota earlier, and uh, some of my early research was looking at the supply chain in Toyota in, the, in Japan in the 1990s. And what, what I was seeing there was in a two-week lead time, uh, they were taking the order for a car, uh, a specific car, not, not one out of a lot. They were making the car to that specification they were making the components for that car within the specification and they were making the components for the components. So what I found was in general, you were going back two tiers in the supply chain. So in other words, you had the retailer, you had the car, you had Toyota, you had the first tier, you had the second tier, and then generally you're getting back to very small home workers or raw material manufacturers and the pull signal and just in time was going back three or four firms within that short lead time. So if you actually had that, that's a just in time system, very local, very flexible, very, very rapid to respond. We, we don't have anything like that. We're, we're relying on huge bulk ordering type systems of, of cheapest is best rather yeah. than actually understanding what the whole just in time system is, is, is really about. Yeah, I think that's well said. And, you know, I think a lot of that is, you know, mis misunderstanding of uh, or, or attempts to copy, you know, somebody looks at an organization with a really well-designed supply chain with flow that enables just in time and they say, oh, well, as a result, they have low inventory. And then somebody tries to copy the results or they try to copy sure. one piece of this more holistic system. Sure. I, I don't understand the hypothesis that others <laughs> may have that sure. that would be effective. Um, you, you, you've got to look at the whole supply chain. So the, the, the research work that I did was in 1994. In, uh, it was actually sponsored by Toyota. Um, and I, I actually was able to look at the whole supply chain. So I went down many tiers and, and I looked at raw materials and I looked at the whole value-adding process of producing a Toyota car. And I don't think anyone had really quite done that. And even Toyota hadn't quite done that. So they, they knew well their direct suppliers and they knew the raw material guys, but they didn't really know the second and third tier. And if you actually built that up and you looked at where the, the value or cost-adding probably more directly was, you could actually get a picture. And I benchmarked that against Europe and, and Korea as well. And I actually identified a weakness in the Toyota supply chain that they've been fantastic at developing their suppliers through um, similar to the, the folks over there in Kentucky um, in, in terms of the supplier development, the, the supplier association type work. But what they hadn't done is they hadn't understood to, to develop the raw material companies. So actually coming out of my research, Toyota then went and applied the same sort of improvement activity to their raw material suppliers. And two years later, you can probably look up the annual report of uh, Toyota. It says how we saved a billion dollars. And this was mm. actually the result of this research that showed them that the gap was actually in the raw material suppliers. So they extended their development. And what they did is they actually then really closed the whole circle in the mid 90s to look at the whole supply chain right back to steel and plastics 
which is so much different to what we're talking about with aprons and masks and so forth. We, we, sure. You know, you've got to look at the whole thing right back to, um, you know, the plastic and, and, and so forth. Yeah, yeah. So um, thank, thanks for your, your thoughts and reflections there and uh, for sharing um, about, about your book and, and other thoughts and experiences you've accumulated. Um, the book, again, is The Essence of Excellence, Creating a Culture of Continuous Improvement. It's available uh, as a paperback. It's available in the Amazon Kindle store. If you are a subscriber to the Kindle Unlimited program, the book is, uh, is part of that. Um, Peter, what else would you recommend in terms of um, websites or uh, places where people can learn more about you and your work? Uh, well, um, quite recently, uh, I've started uh, a networking activity. At this point, it's only in Europe called uh, Enterprise Excellence Network. Mm -hmm. So folk might, might want to have a look at that. Um, what we're trying to do there is bring together in Europe at this point organizations that really are doing this well. So we actually take organizations doing it well or almost doing it well and we bring them together, so we network, we benchmark, we spend two-day sessions at each other's premises, so we do those visits during the year. So we have a whole heap of fun trying to debate how this stuff really works well and, and this type of learning. So uh, all the W's, Enterprise Excellence um, Network.com might be something of interest for the okay. listeners. Well, well, great. And I will link to that in uh, the show notes, so I hope... Um, People will check that out. So uh, again, our guest today has been uh, Professor Peter Hines. Um, and, uh, you know, Peter, I'm really, really glad we could do um, the podcast here. Appreciate you taking time and uh, certainly wish you all the best uh, during, during this um, pandemic and beyond. Good. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.